0: Welcome to the Revenue Architect podcast, where we talk to -to go-to-market leaders about the common problems that hold back revenue growth. My guest this week is Andy Singer, CMO of OpenRaven. And the reason I think you're going to enjoy today's convo is twofold. Number one, Andy is deep in the weeds of category creation, which I think is just a fascinating problem to solve as a startup. And number two, Andy's just got a wealth of experience leading marketing teams. And I have a feeling we're going to get pretty geeky here at some point. So Andy, welcome to the pod. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, Arnie. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here and I appreciate all the kind words.
0: Andy, I want to kick things off asking you a question that's a little bit cheesy, but I know all marketers love it. What kind of marketer would you say you are and what's your marketing superpower?
1: That is a great question and you are a 100% right uh, that it's both cheesy and a question that marketers enjoy getting. I think everybody has a different path into getting into marketing. Um, mine happened to, to come by way of being a technical practitioner in many ways. So I would say that my superpowers are understanding of the technologies behind all the companies that I've worked for being a kind of a builder. Yeah, I really do enjoy being in the weeds and, and trying to build companies up from the bottom. And also just basically, I think listening, uh, I think as a marketer, you have to really listen to the people that you're trying to engage and understand what's going to make them connect.
0: Building and listening, two good skills, I think. Like <laughs> marketing, honestly, any job you yeah. kind of have to listen before you build. Yeah. Open Raven, it's an exciting company. Tell us a bit about it and what's the problem you're solving over there.
1: Well, the problem that we're solving is helping companies that run their businesses in the cloud and things like AWS or GCP or Azure or even you know, places like Snowflake or Databricks, where the business is really driven by the data that they have. And we have a platform that's designed for security teams to be able to protect that data. And fundamentally, what we do is we help those security teams be able to answer critical questions about their data, like where is it located, what types of data do they have, and how that data is protected. And then we give them ways in which they can take action on that information. But I think what's really interesting here, Arnie, is why is the company solving this problem? And it goes back to when the company was founded back in 2019, when at that time, you know, the data economy, essentially like data-driven business um, running at cloud scale was really taken off. And just the volumes of data being put into the cloud was growing exponentially. Um, And at that time, there are really good platforms for data science teams. so they can manipulate data and work with it and make it run, you know, work how the business needs to work a, a ton of privacy tools. Uh, because at that time also compliance laws were just, you know, everywhere and everybody was running a of them and trying to figure it out. So privacy tools took off, but there wasn't any, there weren't any platforms there that really catered to the needs of security teams. So the company saw an emerging need, uh, which was to create this kind of platform and the driver for it from the security standpoint was security teams just didn't have an idea of where sensitive data was located. So we'll take an example of like a data breach. When a breach happens, more often than not, the team that gets the phone call is the security team saying, tell me what happened, how much data was stolen, and what's the impact? And from a compliance product perspective, they might have an insight as to say, ah, this here's some PCI data or credit card or social security number information that was put out there in the cloud. We know it was there and this thing says it was protected. But it doesn't know, it doesn't tell you how many records were in whatever was stolen, um, what countries they belong to, what was the reason why they were stolen, a whole bunch of information that security teams need to know. So our platform helps them get ahead of that kind of issue. There's a whole host of other issues that are coming into play with respect to data that are hitting security professionals, like answering questions like, do I still need to hold on to this data? Is it past the, the point of retention period? Can I help my company minimize the amount of data I have so we can reduce our attack surface, but also our cloud bill, save the company some money? Data is becoming a really important issue uh, for lots of different companies. And so we designed this platform and, you know, in our evolution, We've added capabilities that customers have started to ask for around uh, working with data to the point where we feel like our solution is probably the most mature data security posture management solution in the market today.
0: Yeah, you know, it's really fascinating listening to what you just said. How the data economy has really taken off. Data is growing exponentially, and how the different users of data have been served over the years. You know, fifteen years ago, the question was like, where is the data? Literally, literally, like, where is it? Like, how do I get it into a place where I can use it? And the early data science teams, that was really their biggest problem. It was like. I've got all this great math that I can do, but like I don't have the data, or the data is dirty, or it's just like inaccurate. And people would build models, and then they would be wrong because they were, the plumbing was wrong underneath it. And I feel yeah. like the first set of Of companies really focused on that problem, which was like, let's get the data into a place where you can actually use it. And then I feel like that, you know, just kept growing even more. And then you Mm -hmm. had, how do we just collect data in a more scalable way? Because we can't like use log files and we've got to like, you know, like Kafka, things like that came along. And I remember the first time 2006. One of the engineers on my team said, we need to like have a listener for data. And I was like, what on earth are you talking about? (laughs) And like, whereas if today you said, we need to write data to a log file, people would be like, what on on earth are you talking about? So it's just been such a huge change in how we uh, collect and consume data. And I think that's where all the innovation went, but like that's quite mature now. Like like, I would say those tools are not really in in the early majority phase, but in the late majority phase, like everyone's buying those tools. And sounds like that's created this problem that you just described, which is, well, okay, this is just part of doing business now. We need to put some controls around it. And obviously the privacy regulations Mm -hmm. drove a lot of that and breaches drove a lot of interest and investment there. But imagine you get burglarized and mm-hmm. the police come over and they go what was taken and you're like I don't know <laughs> they're like well can't really help you you know the idea that yeah. the security team is being tasked with like figuring out the scope of the damage when something yeah. happens and i can imagine that a lot of security teams dread that call right they had they, a breach. they
1: totally do cuz cuz companies- yeah, like
0: the FBI comes and they like the FBI will say what happened and literally yeah. you'd be like, I don't know. So and I think it's always a challenge though, isn't it? Cause you ca- it's hard to sell to someone that's already had a breach because they overcorrect <laughs> and they want to like get the gold standard that's out there. Like yeah, compliance is like we need a chief compliance officer or whatever. Whereas if someone's never had this problem, they're like, well, dunno, it feels like insurance. Should I buy it? it's really hard to kind of find that balance. And so, you know, we mentioned that you're building this Mm -hmm. new category, Mm -hmm. data security posture management. Yes. So as a marketer, what do you need to do differently when you're creating a category versus capturing demand in an existing category?
1: I think the biggest difference really is that in early category, you have to build the demand yourself. If you're the only company out there talking about this problem, then a lot of what you have to do as a marketer is create ways... For people to listen to what you're saying, but also kind of engage them and pull you in and get them to recognize the problem that you're describing. And that has a whole host of kind of challenges that it brings to it. I think it's worth talking about the IT budgets and how they drive what companies do when it comes to buying products. As a salesperson, I'm sure you're very familiar with getting ahead of like the budget cycle. If your solution is earmarked for a company in a given year, you've got a pretty good chance of landing that product, landing that sale. Or maybe you could even replace Whatever solution that they have. So from a marketing perspective, when something is already defined in the, in the, in the budget, it's not, it's not necessarily an easier marketing situation, but it's a, it's a known thing that you can go after. Um, so there's lots of marketing strategies that you can employ to go after that, um, displacement campaigns, you know, awareness is much easier. Um, there's lots of things you can do when you're building a category. You don't have a line item in an IT budget. Like just, you know, maybe even like, we'll go back two years, two years ago, IT teams didn't have something called data security posture management, let alone the kind of underlying, you know, capabilities that we offer, which are really data discovery and data classification. Those things were not in people's budgets for the most part, maybe the bigger companies. So as a marketer, you go to a company and say, hey, do you want to learn about DSPM? And they're like, what's that? We have no clue what that is. So going back in time, kind of like to where we were in like 2019, our kind of whole strategy was focused on kind of building up awareness, getting early customers, obviously, but like we wanted to be in a position where the wave of demand that we were predicting in our space, we wanted to make sure that we were going to be at the at the top of that wave when it crests. And we always wanted to be with it. So if we go back in time to when we first started shipping our product, we've got something out, you know, we come, you know, people can buy it and take a look at it. A lot of what we focused on was really called, you know, basic core product marketing. So you have to like do things like in, engage with CISOs and listen to their problems, and you have to connect the dots. You know, you have to kind of probe and Ask questions around challenges with data and security to figure out where like their pain point is and match that to something you solve for. Here's a here's a great example. At that time. You know, probably two years ago, our sales cycle was very much in the following process. You would find a qualified lead, you would have a conversation, you would do the demo, uh, and then you would do a POV, a proof of value or proof of concept. After that, you know, the, the the whole purpose of the POV was to reveal to the customer all the things that they didn't know were happening with their data, you know, exposed information, misconfigured data stores, compliance issues, and whatnot and get them to see the value in your platform. At that point, you get to have the budget conversation. And maybe then they can carve something out for you and you get a win. So... Like that's a really hard process to follow. I mean, if you think about, you know, you're doing things like forecasting and whatnot, that's really tough to forecast, right? Because they're very low probability up until the very late stage. Yeah.
0: Like you imagine a lot of deals just died in proposal, like if proposal came after proof of value.
1: Yeah. And, you and that lost and that's,
0: reason, closed lost reason, no budget or couldn't get yeah, budget. Yeah, Or
1: no budget. But you have to go through those things. And they're actually really good because what you learn from that is the feature you don't have or the capability that they want. Um, or you maybe get into the next cycle. So you've laid the groundwork and it's all a good investment, but it's really hard work, especially for I think, you know, the sales folks at that time because they are really pushing to try to get deals done and it's just the, the probabilities are very low. Now, to help with that, a lot of I think the leads that come in for any early stage company are founder-led. These are friends, people that, that, that you know, and that you're just building good kind of equity in the market as you go. Now, the other thing at that time is that as a marketer, let's talk about what you don't have to go on. There's no search volume for your category there's no for the keywords that you care about so you can't really execute an SEO strategy at that time your website is probably your single best asset because you want everybody to come to it and see what you do and I think one of the I think one of the big mistakes that that marketers make in early stage categories is that they tend to position their products you know at the kind of vision level like radical market change kind of level um, when in reality if there is isn't the building block, the fundamental foundation of understanding what you do and why people should care? They're never going to ascribe to your vision. So, yeah. what,
0: so <laughs> sorry, yeah. t- just I'm thinking yeah. about the number of early stage businesses where you go to the website. And it's just a bunch of jargon, <laughs> and be- because they think that I think a lot of it is the founders. They try and raise money. They try and create a new name for a category so they can own it. And they're sort of talking this industry jargon that maybe an investor would go, yeah. "Oh, this is the you know the the new thing, like generative AI." Like how many cu- <laughs> how many people care what generative AI is? But like investors care about it. So correct. But it's, it's realizing that your investor is not your customer. You got to figure out what your customer cares about. I think it's really interesting. Something you said just a few minutes ago about engaging with CISOs, asking questions, connecting the dots, like listening to how they describe their problems, because it feels like that's the the way you're going to connect. And and another really interesting thing you said there around no search volume. you know, like there's a lot that I think that happens in B2C where, you know, new products come along that people weren't thinking about and they get launched through today, through social in the old days, through the newspaper or something is like, there's got to be some headline that grabs you that makes you go, Oh, I didn't know this existed. And I'm kind of <laughs> interested. I want to read it. Or yeah. I feel like there's maybe opportunities to do that on LinkedIn, but it's like so social but whatever, as a channel, yeah. seems like a bad place to kind of drive discovery of new things that you didn't know you were looking for, whereas search, like you said, is more about capturing demand, like people are trying to solve problems. i don't wonder whether you've got any thoughts on that. Like, Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, so on the social side, the what you really want to do in early category is kind of participate in or drive conversations on the topic. One of the first things that we did was we... Did some research to figure out, you know, what are the topics that are related to what we do, where people are actively having conversations. Now we are fortunate in the sense that cloud security as a market is massive, and I think the growth rate for cloud security is something like going to increase 11% this year. Now in an economic downturn, you've got double-digit growth for 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 a technology space. That means something. I think a lot of it's driven by strong. Cloud security spending and cloud security is, you know, has a lot of subcategories in it. One of them, though, is a space called cloud security posture management. So sounds very familiar to DSPM and we don't think of the names of these categories. This is all done by Gartner, essentially. So we let them come up with these cool sounding names. Um, but essentially, um, the cloud security space is relatively mature. So the, the people using these products and the CISOs that are buying them and all of the ecosystem that supports it. They're having really good conversations about cloud security. For us to get into social, the strategy that we used was to attach to the cloud security posture management space. So we started building up, you know, there's lots of really cool ways that you can figure out what people are talking about. One of them is doing essentially hashtag usage research. So you can, there's analytical tools on the web that are essentially free. Some of them are paid where you could say, look through all of the profiles on Twitter for people who say they are of type X job role, CISO, security engineer, cloud security architect. And then of those, how many, like what are the hashtags that are using? And you get like a word cloud essentially. So you get like maybe a thousand people in a word cloud and then you see what are the top hashtags. So and with respect, and then so you get like things like all the security topics and then you find like cloud security. And one mm-hmm. of the things we found was cloud security was at the top, data security was at the bottom. But our strategy at the time was to just, use those hashtags, have a good social cadence going roughly like one post, uh, you know, 30 posts a month and try to get these people in the conversation. So that was on Twitter. For LinkedIn, it's the same thing. But, you know, LinkedIn, the advertising component, in my view, is much stronger than for B2B, at least than Twitter. So we didn't invest in advertising on Twitter, we invested in advertising on LinkedIn. And because LinkedIn's targeting tools are, are way better. And essentially, that's kind of what we use to try to drive awareness uh, for our company.
0: That's, um, that's. Let me see if I got it straight. So, use tools to figure out what people are talking about, and use it to maybe challenge your assumptions. Like, who would have thought cloud security mm-hmm. was popular, but data security wasn't? You know, it's sort of um, at the end of the day, you just it goes back to what you said about listening to the customer. I think it's just another yeah. way of doing that.
1: I think. And then, you know, I, th- I think if I were to like empirically define kind of what the strategy is. It's essentially attach yourself to an existing topic and start putting into those conversations the the problems that you are solving that are related and see if you can spark conversation. And it's not an overnight thing. It takes, you know, some cases more than a year to start getting traction on that. But you have to kind of invest and do it. Continuously.
0: Yeah, I love that. Attach yourself to an existing topic. You know, don't kind of go and create your own topic. This idea of category creation versus demand capture so easy as a marketer to just jump into a new job and say, right, let's fire up Google, let's fire up <laughs> SEO. And then you're like, wait a minute, what am I, what am I doing? And just taking that step back and saying, are people talking about this, and where and how, right, and right. then come up with your strategy. I think that's just really strong advice, you know, because. If we look back over the last few years, it was definitely a lot of overspending in marketing. I mean, in in everything. Yeah. But very much in marketing, driven by like, let's grow as fast as possible and you know, <laughs> throw money at problems. And it's pretty clear like the economic climate has shifted massively in the past, <laughs> past few months. And the focus is very yes. much now on efficiency. Yeah. And so what are some bad habits that B2B marketers in particular need to kick in this new world?
1: I don't know if everybody would agree that their habits are bad, but I agree with you that there's been a lot of overspending on marketing. There probably have been some startups that were chasing valuations and highly competitive spaces where they probably were overspending, but you can't judge because they're in a different predicament. With respect to kind of enterprise B2B marketing in general, I I got a couple of thoughts. I think one is is that while economic downturns are hard, they really force you to be more objective in analyzing the performance of your marketing programs than anything else. So when you don't have to cut your budget, I think there is a tendency to look at your programs and see if you can kind of engineer your way to success. Oh, we can experiment this. Let's push this another month and try this. You know, let's see if we can spend more here to to get more results and see what happens. And I think the bad habit is, is that you don't force yourself to just give up and say, you know what, this is not going to work right now. Let's, put our uh, eggs over here and make sure we can get real results. And I think that's, that's one of the big bad habits. And it's hard to like, I think it's hindsight is definitely 2020. And I think we're all guilty of doing it, but I would say like the more you can push yourself to be objective and to generate real results than to try to like produce the miracle. That's probably time better spent, you know, and there's some practical examples that I can give on this. I think one of them is definitely advertising programs, you know, trying to find, you know, A trying to create signal and B trying to find signal and the noise are the two things you want to do in advertising. Let's say Google versus LinkedIn, for example. For B2B in a developing space, you know, Google is a is a great platform, especially when there's search traffic. It doesn't necessarily give um, the best ability to target. So, you know, case in point, like take the term data security. It's a pretty big term. Um, and as much as we tried to craft keywords and ads that catered to, uh, security professionals and enterprises when it came to something around data security, one of the things you could never take out of the, out of the, um, the, the clicks were people were, who were basically consumers looking for data security solutions, people who wanted to protect their credit card number uh, from escaping or have better security on their, on their, on their laptop. we could just never get around it because there just wasn't enough volume in the enterprise space to push it out. LinkedIn, though, highly targeted. Um, You can spend lots of time creating really good targeting um, profiles within LinkedIn. And it's great. But ultimately, you know, if people a aren't using LinkedIn, or b if they're just scrolling right past your ads, which you'll never really know, you have to kind of cut bait at some point and switch to something else. So I think that, you know, those are kind of two habits you have to break yourselves up. You have to say, look, we're going to run this for a month. If we don't get the results, we're going to switch. And on Google, you have the bad habit is not looking at the data closely enough and frequently enough to really understand if it's working or not, you know, because they can be kind of like a, like a black box in some, to some degree. So I think those are probably two things I would say people should kick the habit, especially when you don't have big budgets to play with.
0: I mean, so true. I, I can say from my own experience, I used to build these ad platforms. You know, when you're building them, you're optimizing for your revenue, not your customer. As much as you might have objective-based targeting or whatever, at the end of the day, like you are maximizing eCPM, number one, and then you're maximizing customer retention. Mm -hmm. And you're also, especially Google and LinkedIn, you're very aware of your market position and saying, well, at the end of the day, people need me more than I need them. uh, Or my customers need Google more than Google needs its customers. And so I can... Experiment with your money, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, yeah, because you know, like um, it's a great example. Data security. I mean, you mm-hmm. can do things to say, like, give a conversion a different value to Google. You know, uh like someone that fills fills it out. You mm-hmm. can say this is worth X, and then but Google's like, well, you need at least fifty conversions a month. So give me, <laughs> you know, give me enough budget, and then right, you know, and then you sort of Google doesn't really tell you what it's doing to figure out whether it thinks. And Google doesn't get, you know, a, a grade at the end of, you know, performance review at the end of the <laughs> quarter on how they're doing. So yes, yeah, you That's really true. have to, you really have to kind of, kind of go it and go in there and like be really specific. And I think it's very hard. I've seen this a lot. And when it, from someone who sold a lot of advertising, it's very easy to get to say to a marketer, Hey, you want more volume, loosen your targeting? And then because, you know, as a marketer, you're under pressure, aren't you? Like if you deliver a small number of leads, those leads better convert. Otherwise, everyone's like, "Why are you here?" So right. marketers tend to kind of go, "Well, I'll deliver lots of leads, and some of them will be good, you know." And then introduces a whole new set of problems. Um, and, and you know, I think on on Google, you know, well, on paid search in general, like getting really specific on your keywords, um, it, yeah, is so important. You know, going back to what you did, you found on Twitter that uh-huh. data security versus cloud security you know now that i'm hearing them i'm like well clearly no one <laughs> says cloud security if they're a consumer cuz cloud is like an enterprise word but these are things that are like always obvious in hindsight but like uh you know you have to kind of do that research and that listening to figure out what key you know what what should i, I be buying and
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: linkedin i think it's really interesting too um LinkedIn's definitely knows that they're the only game in town
1: <laughs> and, you know, and their
0: targeting is quite kind of um you know it's like um it's very forgiving it's probably like a nice way of describing it because <laughs> uh, you know you just run a search on linkedin and see for, for people like as a recruiter mm-hmm. and see how broad it you know, cause it wants to show you like, there's so many people here. Yeah. But you know, you, you start digging through and you go, that's not really what I search for. And it's like, they're doing a lot of broad matching in the background. Um, just when you do a search. So it's not a stretch having built these systems to say, well, mm-hmm. if, they, if they're going very broad on their search engine, they're going to go very broad on their ad targeting. And, yeah. um, you know, yeah, you have to be really on top. Also just, to, just on, on the LinkedIn mm-hmm. side, like mm-hmm. LinkedIn, I think has this sort of, reputation for being like mid funnel, you know, Uh Google's bottom of funnel for the most part, LinkedIn is mid funnel. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think is like the prerequisites for being successful on LinkedIn?
1: I think the tools there are way better, at least for where we are uh, in creating an early category. Let's talk about some of the reasons why. First is, is that um, the title is directly related to company and titles of people. So you can say, I only want CISOs or I want security engineers, or I want, you know, cloud security architects. And you can find all the derivatives of those titles. You can load in your target account list. And I think this is a fundamental like, good habit of marketers to always be in is owning and driving and creating the target account list. Yes, it has to be created with input from sales, but it is fundamental to how you run Marketing in so many ways, and of all the tools out there, LinkedIn is probably one of the better in allowing you to use that tool um, for targeting. Um, yes, you can use it uh, in Sales Navigator, which is a you know great for leads and prospecting, but the ad targeting is really helpful. So, like here's like for a, from an advertising program perspective, LinkedIn allows you to do a couple of different things. One is is that you can cookie all your website traffic and anybody who hits your website, you can put them into a LinkedIn advertising campaign. Um, so you can create a, a top of the funnel thing with specific awareness ads. Then you can ha- match the rest of the funnel to your content strategy. So you can have some good content in the middle, and then anybody who goes through that step, you can then put into the you know kind of consideration or bottom of the funnel step where you can hit them with, or give them, or serve them you know, uh, a more of a, of a concrete kind of ask, would you like a demonstration? Would you like to get this white paper or something like that? Uh, and then also they're really good at giving you creative ways to do that. So you can do single image ads, you can do carousel ads, videos, lots of different things. So there's lots of tools there. Now, like you said before, it's really easy to say yes. yes, When someone says you know, increase more leads by expanding your audience and loosening up your filters. And what do you get, Arnie? You get lots of leads, but they're from the wrong people. So like, what metric do you really care about? Do you care about saying, hey, I got, you know, 500 leads, and that's great? Or do you care about saying, I got 10 leads, and you know, 80% of them converted to opportunities? Definitely the latter. So you know, one of the things that I think is really hard to do, but it's it's important is to tighten your targeting. Yeah, your audience size is going to be smaller, but at the same time, you know that if you put an ad out and no one clicks on it, it's not because your targeting was bad, it's because your ad was bad. And then you can, you know, iterate and fix it.
0: Yeah, you know, it's so funny you thought about tightening your targeting and getting your ad to match like it took me back to 2007. (laughs) When I launched this product called Hyper Targeting, it was kind of like one of the first audience targeting products in ad tech. Oh, really? Everyone everyone was doing contextual targeting at the time, but I worked at uh, a company that no longer exists called MySpace and we did (laughs) not have any contextual targeting opportunities. So we had to build audience targeting and then explain to advertisers what it was. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we first launched it, and it didn't work and everyone's like the targeting's broken and then we looked <laughs> at the ads and we're like the ads got nothing to do with the target audience right and crave agency was like why why would you make the message targeted to the audience you know it's like <laughs> we don't do that online we just give one ad and it's kind of cool you know we run it broadly targeted and uh you know we mm-hmm. had to literally educate on you need um To match the 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 ad to the to the audience, and it was it was the same time when Facebook was building its ads platform. So I think Mm -hmm. we both benefited from each other. I mean, we were at one time the same size. It's hard to believe now, but (laughs) um, you know, and and uh, we had a lot of the same advertisers. And I think it was actually when we both got into self serve ads that Mm -hmm. it really, you know, the the um, the the performance really improved, just because you know you're opening up your Platform to entrepreneurs and people who see like, oh, I see that you have audience targeting. I should have a message that t- you know types uh, maps into the audience, or whatever yeah. matches the audience, and then suddenly like the imp- you know you you get all these learnings um, that you can share with your bigger customers who are probably in hindsight like late majority buyers. Yeah. So so it was yeah, it's really it's really interesting that that idea of you know got to get right. the messaging and the um and the targeting to match and also just the idea that you should make your target market smaller it's so counterintuitive especially Absolutely. for founders and mm-hmm. you know like you go out there telling your investors that your TAM is it's got to be 50 billion because that's the <laughs> number that, you know um but it's not 50 billion today and right i think what you said there about you got to have your target account list and it's, you know, it's fundamental to how you do marketing, not just how you do sales. Cause it defines your TAM. It's like, no, my TAM is a hundred companies. Right. And then that's it's not my TAM in 10 years, but <laughs> for, in, for the next 10 months. Yeah. And just being really honest about, you know, your target market is smaller than you think. So however you big, how big you think it is, make it smaller. And then kind of pick the right strategy. I remember, like when you and I chatted a while ago, Mm -hmm. you talked about marketing qualified accounts, Mm -hmm. which is actually a term I'd never heard. Is that kind Mm -hmm. of what you're talking about here? With yeah, yeah, tell us more about that. Like, how did you kind of? um, I'm I'm not.
1: I am not the author of that uh, of that term. Um, account-based marketing has been something that's been in in play for several years now. And a lot of it, I think, has been driven by the rise of really amazing platforms like Marketo or Demandbase and SixthSense, Sense, um, where not only do they... You know, like, so like Marketo, for example, automation platforms have the ability for you to analyze and run and create programs at an account level. But tools like Demandbase or Six Sense or even something called Qualified have the ability for you to look at your uh look at your uh, engagement uh, across the market both things that are happening on your site and what people are actually searching for at an account level not just an individual level just to focus in for a second so in, in 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 all sales but really for startups especially early category the the really the main goal is repeatability got to figure out what's repeatable and what works and obviously one of the biggest ones is what does it take to find acquire convert a customer and if mm-hmm. you can keep doing that, you found something that's repeatable. IT buying is not always an individual decision. It's a committee. Um, mm. so you have to find other folks like, you know, for Open Raven, we're going to want to engage the security leader. Sometimes it's the CISO. Sometimes it, maybe it's the VP of engineering or, or different folks, but they also have people on their teams who are going to be researching and evaluating platforms like ours. Um, and then there's influencers. There's the privacy team or the DevOps team. So. When we think about an account, we're trying to understand our level of engagement across all those people. So we can measure individual scores, marketing qualified lead kind of categor, you know categor, uh, characterizations of individuals. Did they read a white paper, did they attend a webinar? did we see them at an event? Um, but what you really want to know is you want to go level up and ask yourself, hey, at this account that's on our target list, you know mm. have we engaged with the CISO have we engaged with the security architect? And then you want to plug in more information. You want to use intent signals to say, and are they searching for the things that we think are predictors of wanting to buy our solution? Do they have a data breach? Are they looking up you know, data security or data classification? Uh, and how, and what frequency are they doing that? And you can use that information also to plug it into your ad targeting. And lastly, um, you want to have a perspective of the engagement of all those people at a, at, a, at a company on your website. And that's where tools like, say, something like Qualified comes in. Where you have the ability to connect your CRM. So we use Salesforce. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's got our target account list. It knows all of our leads and contacts. And when somebody visits our site, BallFi can tell us, hey, this is this person's title is X. They're at one of your target accounts. This is what they're doing on your site. And then you can, there's all sorts of customization you can do with respect to engagement. Oh, and it also tells you the source. So it says, hey, they came in from Google or an ad or organic search. Um, and you get all this information. So now when we think about all the things that we need to do in marketing, one of the biggest things we're doing is we're looking at the accounts and their engagement, and we can tell which ones we should focus on. And as you want to kind of like pounce on them. So maybe you, you know, add them into your targeting profile or you do more SDR outbounding, or maybe you send like a really thoughtful email from your CEO or try to call up one of your investors to say, Hey, you know, the person at this company, we think that they're yeah, you know, getting ready to buy. Let's let's go talk to them. That's kind of like where the focus is.
0: It, that kind of intel is so useful would be so useful to the salesperson who's trying to multi-thread in the deal. So to mm-hmm. you know, because normally it's like it's two different groups. You know, there's I I get, gave you somebody. They're like a champion or a low level person and then you're trying to use them to get access to the rest of the org and you don't get you normally get any signals from marketing on who else is engaged and right if you have an SDR team they usually stop working that account cuz no one wants to stand on anyone's toes and you know it just <clears throat> it's so inefficient um mm-hmm. i think it's really really interesting what you you're doing doing here first of all yeah. just having a small account list so that you can Get your head around like the dashboard of all the accounts, and <laughs> the, what's going on, but then also yeah. like be able to say these people are these specific people are clearly engaged. Like go reach out to them. The t- the tactics you mentioned there, like asking someone for an intro, or whatever, it always works. Because I mean, I <clears throat> I write blog posts every week about topics. I can see who who like <laughs> boards them around, and I'm like, yeah. oh, clearly. Yesterday's one was about how to do warm intros. Clearly, I can tell you who on my list it cares about warm intros right now. Because it's like <laughs> you know, they they yeah. viewed it, viewed it 50-60 times. So yeah, yeah it's some um, I really like the way that you kind of you're bringing you bring the intel into the at the account level. Um yeah, I think I, a lot I, of people think account-based marketing is just uh, a LinkedIn ads campaign, but clearly you told us here it's you know, you've walked us through it's a lot more. You gotta think. Think a lot more about it. And the way to do that is to just have a smaller list.
1: Yeah. On, I'm taking I th- away. I think, and I appreciate that. And you're and you're right. Yeah. Like having a smaller list is definitely valuable. I think there's kind of two things. One is um, don't, like, you know, make sure you keep sight of your goals. Um, again, this is really more um, relatable to startups like startup life, which is essentially, you know, find things that are repeatable. And get the wins from the accounts that matter. So, that kind of focus, I think, is really important at the startup level.
0: Andy, I feel like I could talk to you for another hour about this <laughs> on top of the two hours that we talked about last week. But yes, um, we're coming up on time here. Uh, thank you so much yeah. for sharing your insights with us uh, today. And um, yeah, really appreciate you being here.
1: Thank you for having me, Arnie. Let's do it again.